0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: If you say, well, what are the big technological transitions of the last couple hundred years, right? They move out of agriculture, they're the rise of mass production, the computer era, and now the AI era that we're in.
0: That's David Autor. He's the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT and widely regarded as one of the leading labor economists in the world. His scholarship focuses on the ways in which advances in technology have impacted the labor market from the Industrial Revolution to the present. Otter's attention these days is squarely on artificial intelligence and what tools like ChatGPT will mean for jobs up and down the income scale. Otter joins me to discuss which jobs are most at risk from new technologies, why he's optimistic that AI can help revitalize the middle class and whether the very notion of human expertise will have value going forward. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org/future to learn more and support their
2: cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm.
0: Now, let's get to your questions. Hi, this is Steve in Indiana. I've just read two very dramatic stories. Uh, One about uh, Ms. Rollins, the U.S. Attorney in Boston, who's about to be brought up on charges, I think, for quite a list of uh, violations uh, taking money, taking gifts. Uh, and fixing some things for a preferred political candidate. I'm looking forward to hearing you and maybe Ms. Vance talk about these things. It's pretty rare. So thank you much. Love your shows. Well, see, thanks for your question. Joyce Vance and I do on the Insider Podcast this week talk at some length about the transgressions that are set forth in an Inspector General report with respect to the U.S. Attorney in Massachusetts who just resigned as of last week, because of the seriousness of the allegations. I'm going to correct you on one thing. She's not brought up on charges. I'm not sure any laws were broken of a criminal nature. But other laws were, according to the report, including Hatch Act violations with respect to a political fundraiser that Ms. Rollins should not have attended in her capacity as a sitting United States attorney. Uh, Most egregiously are allegations that she favored a political adversary of one of her successors as a district attorney in the local community by revealing and disclosing confidential information about the Justice Department's potential investigation to the local press, and then most egregiously, in interviews with investigators, lying about those things. There are also questions that have been raised about her accepting tickets to a Celtics game and some other things as well. And as Joyce and I discussed from time to time, a high-level official at the Justice Department or elsewhere in the government commits violations. And at least in this case, she seems to have taken responsibility and the administration as a whole seems to have taken it very seriously. And I'm glad to see that that office will have new leadership because those transgressions are inexcusable and cause people to question whether or not justice is being administered and enforced in a fair manner in a very, very important US Attorney's Office that covers the entire state of Massachusetts. Now I'll make one final point, And that is, I, w- I think it's worth contrasting the seriousness with which both that person and the Justice Department and the administration took credible allegations of violations of the Hatch Act as compared to Hatch Act violations that were ignored, scoffed at, and laughed at by high-level officials in the Trump administration, including by Kellyanne Conway and others. You'll recall that part of the Republican National Convention back in the election cycle of 2020 was conducted on the White House lawn. And there have been some disputes about whether or not that was a technical Hatch violation or not. There is reams of evidence that multiple members of the Trump administration committed ethics violations for which there was no accountability, no responsibility taken, and in fact, somewhat celebrated. So it's sad and unfortunate to see what happened to the U.S. attorney in Massachusetts and the conduct she engaged in, but it's refreshing to see accountability. I'll be right back with my conversation with David Otter.
2: Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash or wherever you listen.
0: Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. The AI era has arrived and it is likely to affect a wide swath of jobs and professions in the coming years. The labor economist David Autor has spent much of his career thinking about the consequences of technological change on society. David Autor, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Before we started recording, I, I heard the clicking of a keyboard. and I thought it was a member of my team, and you said, no, it was you. And I said, if you need to finish some work, you may go ahead. And you said you were communicating with your kids and I said, seeking some uh, approval, do you text your family, including your children, from within your home when everyone is within the home? Yes, I definitely do. <laughs> um, and and that's approved. That's that's approved, and that's okay. Oh yeah, conduct?
1: no no texting. Is, I mean, it just you
0: don't have to it, walk upstairs to have the conversation. Not. It's so much less intrusive. I
1: mean, than calling, than knocking on the door. It's it's like the 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 lowest overhead way of communicating, and I, I think uh, I think kids appreciate. It. I, it's like. I, I would uh, yeah, I, f- I think there's so many ways that technology has actually made being a parent easier. Like for example, I bought my kids' smartphones when they were I don't can't remember 10, 12, and I said, I'm gonna pay for this for as long as you want, but you will always leave find my friends on and I'll always know where you are. and then I'll be a, a less annoying parent because I won't call you. <laughs> I won't be worried. I just need to know where you are. And similarly, I don't I don't interrupt them in the middle of things. I don't knock on the door very much.
0: Uh, I don't I don't ring and demand to speak. I just text. So we have a lot to talk about with respect to technology, generally, and with AI specifically, I think it's right that we're spending so much time talking about it, how it affects the world, how it might affect our humanity, how it affects the arts, how it affects, as you and I will discuss, employment and labor markets. But since we're talking about kids, have have you, I don't know how old your children are, if you want to share that, are you noticing some sort of trends in adoption of AI and some of this very, very emergent technology among young people versus older people?
1: Well, I have one college age kid. Two of my kids are done with college, and uh, certainly, you know, ChatGPT and generative AI is is ubiquitous in what they do, and uh, and they're kind of integrated in real time, and their uh, their uh, <laughs> their instructors are trying to deal with it in real time. Um, I would say actually one thing I've noticed generational generationally in terms of. Um, dealing with technology and information is that you know i would i graduated high school in 1982 so i'm uh, considerably older than my kids <laughs> and um you know i i grew up in what i would call a kind of an information scarce environment where a lot of the goal in school was to sort of find information memorize information you know a, and like track it down like i would go to the library to look something up and then i would read an article and then i would look in the social sciences citation index to figure out what other people had cited this article then i would find those articles and so on and so it was always it was about like finding authoritative information but in the present period we are inundated with information but it's of incredibly incredibly heterogeneous quality you don't really know what's reliable and what's uh, fictitious but i think kids are, or young people have a, a sense uh, that information is is not to be trusted, and so for example, whenever my kids sort of you know send me a video of something or some news story, they always source it. They say, "Oh, it's from here, but I've checked it. It's probably not uh, BS because you know I've I've looked in three other places and it seems to be true." So they know to be skeptical. Uh, whereas I really think uh, among adults, you know, older adults, you know, grew, grew up in a time when. If something was on TV, it was probably somewhat authoritative. <laughs> all the same network, all the networks said the same thing, and so they were, in some sense, less skeptical and less, uh, you know, felt less need to, you know, cross-check everything because it was assumed that information was, you know, coming from authorities. So I, I do think people, uh, generationally, have learned that you know this the scarcity is not. Information anymore, but it, it's reliable, <laughs> reliable, verifiable, factual information, and and that's a real that's a real change in in the kind of
0: milieu in which we live. But the quality of information or its reliability is going to get less and less with the advent of AI and deep fakes and the like. You just described circumstances in which your children were skeptical, and then they could do some research and figure out if they're right to be skeptical or wrong to be skeptical. Aren't we rapidly getting to the point where? confirmation of something is accurate and genuine is going to be almost impossible. I think it's gonna be very difficult. I, I think, but not possible. impossible. Are you, you have defi- you have resisted my word impossible.
1: <laughs> well, I think we'll develop defenses against it, but I think it's very challenging, you know? So um, the thought experiment, imagine the, uh, the infamous Access Hollywood video were surfaced today, right? With Donald Trump uh, saying well, he would he never said. concede that that was him, right? Exactly. He would say, "Oh, it's a deep fake." It's deep fake, and people would have no way to confirm or deny that, so they would believe him, or at least people who wanted to believe him would believe him. And so, yeah, that's already, and, and that's even without AI, right? You don't need any, any AI for him to say that, but the existence of AI makes it
0: uh, <laughs> makes it credible that uh, that it could be true, right? But 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 it's, but it's even worse than that, isn't it? Because l- let's say you had a An expert let's say it was you or one of your colleagues at mit and they had what the consensus would consider a good technology for detecting you know the the accuracy or genuine nature of a video or a photograph or an an audio clip who cares all donald trump has to say is you know that guy's fake news and so even if you have a general consensus that there's a detection capability why do people have to believe that? Isn't that isn't that part of the problem going forward?
1: Lots of people dispute what's true, what's false, but nobody wants to admit that what they believe is false. <laughs> and so everyone's invested in saying that, you know, what they're telling you is true, whether or not it's really true. And so I I do think if you could quote, disprove it, that many people would accept that disproof. The question is, how do you do it? Right? And that's the challenge that you know it used to be. Well, you know, look at a photograph. A photograph is proof, or look at the video, or listen to the audio. But now we know, of course, that's that's can be uh, simulated. So that's uh, <laughs> uh, we we lose that. So how do we get it back? So I have a I have an idea about this. It's it's pretty um, it's pretty speculative, which is uh, if I were uh, you know I were a public figure or more of a public figure. I would essentially always have cameras and microphones around me with an nft uh, that verified that whatever I said or did, you know, was being recorded and in some sense could be reliably authenticated to having, you know occurred in the presence of my non-fungible token that proved, you know, uniquely that it was me. And therefore anything that showed video or audio with me that didn't have that, I could say, well, that didn't happen. That's false. This is you know, provably false. And so, you know, it would be kind of, you have to develop a kind of a defensive posture. Right. But there are going to be
0: times it's sort of like the defensive aspect of a police body cam, right? Um, Exactly. Exactly right. But there are going to be times, I imagine, I don't know how private a person you are.
1: exactly. Yeah, it's not everything I want is recorded.
0: There are going to be times when you don't want to be recorded and if there are times that you're not going to be recorded, doesn't that defeat the protection you've described?
1: It it depends on the circumstances. (laughs) Right? You could, you know, if I'm, shown you know on a television camera you know appearing to say something I never said, presumably I would have done that uh, while I was being recorded. but i I agree this is not simple but I do think you know with technologies, we often are using technologies for defense against the technologies we create for offense right I mean that's the nature of warfare constantly you have offensive technologies then you have defensive technologies that are built to uh, you know to thwart them. You know, we have, you know, we have missiles, we have things that shoot down missiles. <laughs> uh, we have, we have malware, we have software that, you know, attempts to detect malware. So I think, you know, looking forward, we're going to be using a lot of AI to protect ourselves against AI. Uh, and I think that's the only tool that will be suitable for that purpose.
0: Yeah. Can, can regulation accomplish some part of maintaining authenticity? Can we require people or at least corporations, uh, and other significant stakeholders in the, in the economy to make declarations about things to say that they're fake or not fake? Or is that unworkable?
1: I think that's pretty difficult because any entity can create fake information and they don't need, uh, to promulgate it. They don't, you know, they don't need, uh, you know, a return address. (laughs) Um, So I, you know, I, I think you can, you can regulate corporations and organizations. Certainly you could say that to Google, you can say that to Facebook and and you could get them to comply, but there are so many other actors, uh, with uh, access to these technologies and in some sense, they're not, uh, bound, they're not licensed. Uh, it's yeah, you could, you can come after them if you can, you know, it's illegal to, you know, shout fire in a crowded theater. Anyone could do it, but, you know, presumably they'd be punished. But in many cases, many of these things uh, don't have a return address. So I think that's going to be quite difficult. So I think this is going to be a pretty decentralized problem because, you know, bad information will emanate from many, many sources. We'll get better at being skeptical of it. Uh, So I don't think people would react to it in the same way now as they would 10 years ago when they they didn't know deepfakes existed. But I do think we're going to have to develop defensive technologies that allow us to you know, thwart misinformation and, you know, kind of, uh, fake information. I don't, and I don't think there's a simple solution to that. Uh, but like m- many such things, uh, we're going to have to figure out a defensive posture that is, if not an equal of, at least is, you know, some protection against the offensive posture that we have created with the, uh, with these technologies.
0: What, what do you think of the people, and maybe you're among this group, Who have suggested there should be a pause in the development of AI technology until we figure out what the hell is going on and at least consider what regulations are appropriate. Is that the right way to go about it? And even if it is, is it even possible? Yeah, so I don't think it's even possible. (laughs) Um, Finally, finally, you're endorsing and embracing the idea of impossibility.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think we need to regulate it for sure. And I think the people who, you know, signed the letter saying we should have a six-month pause, I I am with them in terms of the concerns that they raise, which are extremely valid uh, and scary. Um, The ability to actually pause it is sort of—it's not clear what that means, but in a competitive environment, uh, if everyone says, okay, let's, you know— uh, everybody go home, and uh, we're all going to take the weekend off. Nobody practice for the track meet on Monday morning. <laughs> well, you can be sure people will be practicing in the privacy of their backyard. Right? There's no way you can stop them from advancing uh, during this so-called hiatus. And of course, even if we in the U.S. all agree to do that, we still have uh, adversaries who would who would not be doing that. So you don't, it's, you don't think North Korea would abide by uh, um, cause? <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say put my money on them not abiding, uh, nor uh, nor uh, the People's Republic of China. And this is this is unf- this kind of unfortunate and scary competitive logic of these things that even if you know I I think Google was actually much more ho- hesitant than uh, OpenAI in re- in releasing powerful yep. chatbots. But the then world. they but had no soon, choice. Competitively, they had no choice. Right? OpenAI did it. They had to do it too, and uh, and then so did Facebook and so on. So yeah, I think it's I don't like the phrase the genie is out of the bottle, but I think it applies in this
0: case. But there you've used it. <laughs> I,
1: I have used it exactly, and and unfortunately, and this is you know. You say, well, how have we dealt with other dangerous technologies that we have created? Uh, and there, you know, the variety of answers. One, of course, in the case of like, you know, nuclear weapons, that was actually, as it turns out, not as hard a problem as some because they're extremely expensive, they're extremely detectable, they take a long time, uh, and so we can sort of figure out where they are. No one can just, you know, build a nuclear weapon at home and deploy it. Uh, and so that was somewhat controllable. But of course, AI doesn't have that feature. It's not at all centralizable. Uh, It it costs a lot of money to train an AI model, um, but once it's trained, um, and it's made available, uh, then it can be be run on a lightweight computer. So it may cost dozens or hundreds of millions of dollars to build, but then to actually operate, takes a few thousand dollars. So uh, this is a sort of a a thought puzzle I uh, give to myself is. Imagine today was, you know, September 12th, 2001, and then just been this horrific terrorist attack on the U.S. homeland. I know you were in New York at the time. And it was done, you know, through, you know, asymmetric actors using, uh, you know, inexpensive technology. And if we were sitting there then and, and having conversations, what is the likelihood that the next 22 years will elapse without something similarly catastrophic happening in the United States? And I think, I know I would have said, oh, zero.
0: Right? I would have of said course. zero, too. I've, I've thought about this and talked about this yeah. for years and years. I would have said zero. Oh, okay, zero. good. Yeah.
1: So it's an interesting question. like How did we do that? Yeah. Right? Because <laughs> it, is, it is a lot like, you know, terrorism is a lot like AI. Uh, it's inexpensive, it's decentralized, and they're, you know, just an infinite uh, set of potential actors. And yet, somehow we've managed to contain it over two decades, even though it's very, very different from nuclear weaponry, where that would be, in theory, much easier to do. So the fact that we did have done that, seemingly, should give us some hope that we are better at this than we recognize.
0: That's super interesting. I just want to pause on that for one second, because the way I've thought about 9-11 and the lack of a repeat, if we change the question a little bit and you ask me, um, or maybe I'll change my answer, what's the likelihood that over the next 22 years, there will be something as catastrophic as 9-11 perpetrated on American soil? My answer wouldn't be, you know, 100%, or if you've changed the way you ask the question, 0%. It would be some medium-level number. But what I've thought about is, what's the likelihood that we won't have sort of one-off attacks, you know, backpack bomb on the subway, you know, sniper loose, al-Qaeda sniper loose right. at the train station? You know, the kinds of things that actually can bring a city not to the kind of stop that it was brought to on 9-11, but the sort of, you know, random terror, terror and fear... Right. Can also paralyze, I mean, you know, remember the the Malvo father and son who were snipers in the DC area and, you know, I didn't want to go fill my car up with gas in New York because they were, there were these snipers 200 miles to the South. And that's not as hard as taking down two iconic buildings. And we saw none of that either. And I've never understood the reason for that.
1: Yeah. And, and most of the terrorism we face in the United States is domestic terrorism that we essentially Condone or don't attempt to contain. So we are definitely <laughs> facing a lot of risk from uh, people with dangerous weapons, but they're uh, homegrown, and we've made it uh, legal for them to be that dangerous.
0: Yeah, I mean, I like to think part of the reason it hasn't happened again is law enforcement and intel capability were ratcheted up, and I was, you know, I was part of that infrastructure for a while. Yeah, massively. I mean, <laughs> yes, um, and, and also, you know, we're a little bit far afield, but it is super interesting. You know, people who are experts on terrorism will tell you that when it comes to America, and I think this is, I'm glad glad about this quote-unquote lack of imagination on the part of people who hate America and want to kill Americans, is it a little bit in the wake of 9-11, these are some experts who say this and may or may not be true, people didn't want to do something small. If you want to bring death to America, the standard now became 9-11. And a couple of backpack bombs, if you had, like some of these people do, who wage jihad against America... Delusions of grandeur, and they seem they seem small, and not the kind of thing to aspire to. So there's a certain terrorist psychology or mentality that some people refer to, and maybe have relied on, for there not to be the same kind of attacks that even if lesser than 9-11 would still have been devastating. That's an interesting point. So you you've studied labor markets and the effect of technology on the economies of of the world, generally, and then labor markets in particular. So before we get to AI and what this moment means for us. Can we go back to the Industrial Revolution? We don't talk about the Industrial Revolution enough.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <laughs> on the on the podcast, certainly, and and in general, uh, in the world, just quickly give us an historian's sort of account of the ways in which the Industrial Re- Revolution changed economies generally and disrupted and upended labor markets in particular.
1: Very uh, happy to do that. Thanks for the question.
0: Yep. So prior
1: to the Industrial Revolution, or prior to you know, mass production, uh, most things were made by artisans. Artisans were people who had a specific skill set that allowed them to make a product essentially from end to end. Right? You'd be a shoemaker or a wheelwright who made you know wheels for um, you know carriages or a blacksmith. And uh, and so this was a, a broad set of expertise. Uh, it took years to acquire. Uh, there were very few people who did it, and uh, it was, of course, a slow, labor-intensive process, which meant that, you know, goods, manufactured goods were expensive. <laughs> um, the Industrial Revolution and, and mass production is what many people think of when they think of Industrial Revolution, was a way of producing things that instead of using skilled artisans, you used capital, i.e. machines, managers, and often cheap unskilled and exploited labor so you know many of the workers in the early british textile factories were indentured children uh, who were given into indenture to at say you know age 10 and kept there until age 18 and so it was a really different way of making things it was extremely disruptive so you know people often derived so, the so-called luddites people who rose up against the uh, power looms the textiles uh, machines making machines but they had every reason to be concerned. In fact, their livelihoods were wiped out. <laughs> uh, many artisans could not compete with mass production. And as a result, it led to a decline in the material standards of living of people who did that type of work.
0: Can we pause on that for a moment? Because this is a phrase that we'll come to when we come to the modern day expertise. Now, the, the artisans in the pre-industrial revolution era were experts, were they not? And people who had absolutely substantial skills- and so the disruption that technology wrought with respect to the Industrial Revolution worked adversity against people who had expertise.
1: Had that particular form of expertise. Right.
0: Which is not how we, in the interim, have often thought about, you know, for some people, the curse of technology, which puts unskilled people out of work. So That's exactly
1: how I think about it, actually, is expertise. <laughs> so, I mean, I think you ex- exactly put your finger on it, is that what the Industrial Revolution did initially was displace artisanal expertise and of course that artisanal expertise was the source of livelihood for uh, many people who had invested their effectively their lives in it and uh, and it was it created adversity and initially the work that replaced it was non-expert work uh, it was work that required basically generic skills which are you know physical dexterity attentiveness uh and willingness to work under in grueling conditions often in loud dirty and dangerous places uh, at low pay and in fact you know one reason children were preferred in uh, the early textile mills is because you often had to change threads or bobbins while the machines were still operating without being able to stop them because slopping them would slow the line and so if you weren't if you didn't have quick reflexes you would lose a finger and if you did and in fact losing fingers wasn't uncommon and that was considered an acceptable price for indentured children So, but not to end on that bleak note, uh, as the industrial revolution rolled forward, the complexity of products dramatically increased, the the weight given to quality and consistency of those products increased, and as a result, the skill demands rose for people who were actually doing that work. Uh, It was not sufficient to just, you know, show up and uh, do the thing that was uh, shown immediately in front of you. People had to have what I would call mass expertise they had to be able to learn rules and master tools. And uh, that was facilitated in the United States in particular by the high school movement that had sent most U.S. young people through school until about age 18. Uh, and that started in the late 1800s, uh, excuse me, in the late 1900s, it continued into the early 20th century so that by, you know, before the Second World War, entire essentially the entire U.S. young population was being sent through high school. Not all of them were completing, but... So they're extremely well-educated by any world standard at that time. And so mass production eventually became much more skill-intensive, but it was a different set of skills. It was not artisanal skills. It was skills at executing well-defined tasks, either physical tasks like repetitive production tasks or cognitive tasks like bookkeeping, uh, copying, typing, uh, spell-checking, and uh, even phone answering and so on. And so these were what you know what I call the mass expertise skills of the twentieth century uh, up until, you know, the computer revolution in some sense, which was this ability to carry out codified procedures using uh, you know technology and literacy and numeracy and some judgment for sure, but not a ton of discretion. But that helped create the u s. middle class and the middle class in many industrialized countries. Because those were productive jobs that made use of skills that people had acquired in schools. And they took expertise uh, because you couldn't be immediately good at them the day you started. You really needed experience and training and on-the-job learning to become good at it. And so your your, your skills were valuable. Uh, they were different different skills from what artisans had. Um, but they were uh, used well in a productive setting. And so they, they led to relatively high earnings. Again, you know, know, if you were white and male, let's be clear, (laughs) Uh, this wasn't, uh, this was not uh, egalitarian
0: uh, in that period. So there was a certain skill set that was valuable among broad populations. Those people, because of the advent of technology, mass production, and other things, those people suffered as a result. Their expertise became devalued. The artisanal. Yeah. But an entirely new expertise became necessary and important and developed over time Thereafter, is that how normally big changes in technology make themselves felt economically?
1: I, uh, you know, we we have not undergone enough technological transitions of that scale <laughs> to, uh, you know, to to kind of generalize very well. I think, you know, we, you know, if you say, well, what are the big technological transitions of the last, you know, couple hundred years? Right, they move out of agriculture. They're the rise of mass production, the computer era. <laughs> and now the AI era that we're in. So I would
0: say each of them, each time is different. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's uh, talk about the, before we get to the computer era, just to preview a little bit, that's really saying something. That we're talking about mass production, the computer era, and this thing that many, many, many people in the world and in America are just sort of getting their hands around for the first time, AI, artificial intelligence, you put on the same list as those other two things.
1: I do. I and, do. And does everyone? Uh, no, <laughs> but more and more people do. Uh,
0: and, uh, you know, For I've been watching this for a long time. And uh, how long ago, how, how, so because you've been studying it and watching it and you're in MIT, how many years ago, if you were thinking about it, would you have put AI on the shelf with the Industrial Re- Revolution and with the computer era?
1: Only in the last couple of years would I have put it on that
0: list. So how does something go from not being on that list to being on that list by someone like you? with the studying you're doing and the exposure you have and the research you do. I mean, just what are we to take from the fact that AI came from back in the pack to being on a a par with the computer era and the industrial revolution? I find that remarkable.
1: Yeah, I find it remarkable as well. So let, let me say, my surprise is sort of downstream of the surprise of my colleagues in computer science and artificial intelligence. So I've, you know, the, my good fortune being MIT, I've I've spent the last two decades talking with people who work on and develop these things. And, you know, two decades ago, we were in the middle of what people would have called the AI winter, the period in which, you know, there had first been this initial optimism, then it was, you know, it was really a flop. Uh, and so people were aware that AI had really gone no, nowhere and it had not uh, in any sense fulfilled its promise. And then 10, maybe maybe 12 years ago, people in the AI community at MIT were talking about neural nets and back propagation and the stuff that had, you know, come out, come from Jeffrey Hinton and Jan LeCun and these early AI pioneers. And they're saying, oh, wow, this stuff is actually getting pretty good at, you know, recognizing things in photographs and, you know, creating sentences and, and, you know, uh, observing patterns and drawing inferences. And some of the folks in the room were like, yeah, this is actually really going somewhere. And others were like, nah, you know, it's going to get it right on average and miss every important case. It's just, it doesn't, it's not sophisticated enough. It's not just a question of power. It just doesn't have enough of a conceptual model of what the world is to do anything that's really smart. And so this was a a wide open debate. And some people were very skeptical that this technology could in some sense get very far, that the the idea would hit the flat of the curve very quickly. And others were skeptical, but impressed. And still others were pretty gung-ho. And I would say at this point, Most everybody is pretty impressed and has come around to the idea that the potential of this idea uh, is much greater than was recognized at the time. And it really hasn't fundamentally changed since the ideas of Hinton and Lacuna and others. It's really uh, that the scale of it has improved so much the processing power, uh, the size of the hardware, the speed. And that has allowed it, it turned out to be such a powerful idea that scaling it to that magnitude. Uh, allowed it to realize a lot of that potential so I my skepticism as I said uh, is not because of my direct expertise of the technology but because of my direct observation of people who are at the frontier of the technology the computer revolution you can think of it as starting in the 1980s computers have been around since the second World War but uh, they didn't become cheap and and uh you know commonplace until the 1980s and what you know what is a computer what distinguishes it from prior technology well a computer is a symbolic processor, meaning it can act upon stored representations of information. It can take data, it can analyze data, it can uh, do calculations, and in a flexible way. Symbolic processing is a a very, very general notion. Computers are no longer purpose-built to do one thing. Anything that can be represented as a series of logical instructions and steps can be executed By a computer the computer won't use judgment it won't solve problems it won't improvise (laughs) but it'll do many of the what i would call mass expertise tasks that many workers were doing from the 1920s forward which is you know mastering rules and 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 using tools and so computers had the effect of displacing a lot of that middle skilled work that was done in offices that was done in factories by essentially taking that work that required literacy and numeracy or you know analytical reasoning and processing and following a set of well-understood rules and procedures. And instead of having people with high school educations do that, computers could do that. And so this was very disequalizing for the labor market because it really hollowed out the middle. It hollowed out these you know, middle tier of jobs that were done by people with high school and some co- sometimes college educations that were really provided the backbone of many middle-class families and sort of pushed people into one of two categories. Um, for people who went on for college, it was prove very complimentary to professional and technical and managerial workers. Why? Because they need to make decisions, having lots of information, and processing power makes that much easier. Whether you're doing law, whether you're doing medicine, whether you're doing computer science, whether you're doing marketing, whether you're managing a large organization, having all that information readily available and all the you know the calculation, the data, the processing power, the view into what's going on, allows you to then make a better decision, right? You, you know, write a better legal brief, produce a, uh, do more data analysis, et cetera. So that was great. Um, however, if you weren't in that realm and no longer was available to you, a, you know, good production, blue-collar job, good white-collar office job, a lot of people moved into personal services, food service, cleaning, uh, security, entertainment, recreation, and, and that's socially valuable work, but it pays poorly. And the reason it pays poorly is because the skills required are not expert, most people can be productive in that type of work within a few weeks or a few months of training, even though that work is, you know, valuable. So, you know, think about being a daycare worker or a crossing guard or a security guard. These are life and death occupations, right? P- people's lives are at stake in the work that you do, and yet it's poorly paid. And the reason is because it doesn't require much expertise in the way we think of it, just like the word, term you use so aptly a few minutes ago. So- Uh, That is the situation we found ourselves uh, up till recently. And, you know, people with rarefied expertise in the professions, uh, people with, you know, BAs and and MBAs and JDs and MDs and PhDs and so on have become in some sense scarcer and scarcer. Now you might say, well, how can they become scarcer? There's more than there used to be. (laughs) It's true, but they're paid more and they work more hours. They're actually kind of uh, they're the they're the bottleneck in so many things that need to happen because all the easy information processing and calculation has been done and now someone has to make these high-stakes decisions about how do we care for this patient how do we architect this building how we design how do we design this piece of software etc so now what does ai do that traditional computers did not well traditional computers could only follow rules and procedures that we could write down only things that we could codify that we knew the steps the irony is that there are many, many things that we do that we don't actually know how we do them. Uh, the philosopher Michael Polanyi said, we know more than we can tell. You know, you know how to ride a bicycle, but you couldn't teach a class on how to ride a bicycle. Right? Uh, you know how to uh, cook a meal or set a table, but you could never write a piece of software that would do that work, because it requires all kinds of what, what we call tacit
0: knowledge. And this- Can I give an example from your, from your work? Uh, absolutely. And some of your writing, which I think is fascinating and, and explains maybe to lay people, who are new to the subject what AI is about. And you talk about how difficult it is to explain what a chair is. And you write, quote, It is extraordinarily challenging to explicitly define what makes a chair a chair. Must it have legs, and if so, how many? Must it have a back? What range of heights is acceptable? Must it be comfortable? And what makes a chair comfortable anyway? Writing the rules for this problem is maddening. If written too narrowly, they will exclude stools and rocking chairs. If written too broadly... They will include tables and countertops. End quote. So take take us from that example as you've just been describing and explaining how AI handles that issue that computers generally were not able to.
1: Right. So the way uh, AI handles that problem is we never write down the rules for what makes a chair a chair. Instead. We show pictures of chairs to AI and things that are not chairs, and we say this is a chair and this is not a chair. Right. And somehow and <laughs> the learns. machine figures it out. It generalizes from those examples. And you might say, well, how can how's that possible? Well, you and I and our children do this all the time, right? You could show a bicycle to a six-year-old child, say, hey, this is a bicycle. Then you could show them a picture of a tricycle and a bicycle wrapped around a tree, <laughs> right? And uh, and they would all they would immediately recognize, oh, those are all bicycle somehow. We don't even know how they do it, but it's quite mysterious, in fact. But they generalize and they make inferences from a collection of, you know, data and fact. And AI is now capable of doing that kind of thing. Does it do it exactly like we do? We don't actually know. Does it do as efficiently as we do? Almost surely not. (laughs) You know, you might take a million images to train a a AI what a chair is, and a kid could figure out in a matter of, you know, a few photographs. But nevertheless, it does it, and so that ability to do this kind of inferential learning means that we don't any longer have to write down the rules. AI can learn to do something by example, and sometimes, and if it gets the right feedback, it can do it better than we can, because it can learn from its own mistakes, often very rapidly. It can even, you know, two uh, computerized Go players, uh, the game of Go, can play against one another, against them itself effectively, and learn from playing against itself.
0: What's interesting about the chair example and how we classify things and how AI develops without being told written rules, right? It, it learns through this process of being given examples. There's an area of study and of and of profession that doesn't work that way and can't work that way. And that's the profession I practice, which is law. And I remember, this is just reminding me of, I think, an example that was given to me early in law school about the importance of definitions and rules and principles um, there's a sign at a park and it says no vehicles allowed in the park. It's kind of like your chair issue. Well what's a vehicle? Obviously a, a station wagon is a vehicle, but is a is a tricycle a vehicle? Is a bicycle a vehicle? Is a cart a vehicle? Is it something with and you know if you had AI being the judge deciding whether or not there was an infraction of the no vehicle rule. Maybe I'm going off on a crazy tangent, but it just occurs to me that you would have a different way of evaluating questions of of justice and punishment and and enforcement, if you had AI trying to figure out what is or is not a vehicle, what is or is not a chair, because the law demands black and white rules and principles.
1: Right. But but then again, a lot of legal work is figuring out what principles apply and coming up with a fresh argument to define an issue, right? So my question to you
0: is, when you train AI on being able to recognize a chair, that all makes sense to me. And as you write, nowhere in the learning process does AI formally codify or reveal the underlying features, i.e. rules, that constitute chairness. But if you queried AI, and I guess I could have done this, if you queried AI after it's gone through the process of learning what a chair is and recognizing chairs, and said, what is the definition of a chair? What constitutes a chair? What are the features of, of an object that give it chairness? Would it defy your question? Would it not answer your question? because that's not how because that's not how it operates. It would answer
1: your question but no better than you would answer it. <laughs> I'm sure you'd give a great answer but it would say something well it's it's a thing that's good for sitting in. <laughs> right. Right. And then you say well what's good what does that mean? <laughs> and then we would be back into this infinite regress. So this is actually a great challenge with AI is that it can't explain to us what it is doing. So its representation of information and rules is highly abstract, just like our own. You know, you could peel my head open and say, well, what is Otter thinking right now? And it wouldn't be obvious from looking at my neurons. And similarly, when AI learns, there is no codification. It's a set of associations and weights among different pieces of information that is opaque to us. And this is actually a, uh, a major challenge. So the, the point I made earlier about we know more than we can tell this is what I refer to as Polanyi's paradox—the paradox that we understand things that we don't know how to explain. But when it comes to AI, we end up in a, the converse situation that I call Polanyi's revenge, which is that AI now knows things that it can't explain to us, and so neither are we good at codifying tacit information, nor is AI good at explaining what it has learned tacitly. And this makes it very challenging to predict, even though AI is, you know, following the rules of physics and you know quantum mechanics and so on. It's from our perspective, it's in some sense stochastic. It's not fully predictable what it will do in any given situation. And uh, and that provides a challenge because how do we develop confidence in it? And how do we know why it decided what it decided or said what it said? And as you know, in law, intention matters. It's not just what you do, it's why you did it. So, you know, there are three different types of, you know, manslaughter, <laughs> right? You know, there's homicide, there's, uh, you know, you, you know in- unintentional and so on. And they all result in a person being killed, but it matters why you did it. And that would have an enormous effect on whether you were set free or sent to jail for the rest of your life. And so the fact that AI can do things and yet uh, we won't know why it's doing what it's doing is actually quite problematic from our point of view of uh, being, you know, having intention behind action.
0: I'll be right back with David Otter,
2: State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
0: So one thing you've written, and we've talked about this already, is about AI, is that you are worried about the devaluation of expertise. On the other hand, you express hope and optimism that AI if used in certain ways, can expand the middle class and give opportunities to people. And so I want you to to address that that dichotomy, but if you might do it in the context of an experiment done by some of your colleagues at MIT, which showed that, that the use of an AI tool within a group helped the least skilled and accomplished workers the most, decreasing the performance gap between employees. In other words, the poor writers got much better, the good writers simply got a little faster. So should we be hopeful about expansion of the middle class and the lifting up of people who are left skilled or bemoan the focus on expertise and the devaluation of expertise or both?
1: That's a, a terrific question. So the study you're speaking of is by my students, uh, Shaked Noy and Whitney Zhang. And essentially they did an experiment with college-educated professionals who do writing and had them do tasks that involved either writing advertising copy or creating a business report. And uh, just repeating in some sense what you summarized, Everybody got faster, so they had a treatment and control group. The treatment group was given access to ChatGPT in the second round, and the control group just did two rounds using uh, paper and pencil or whatever word processor. And uh, everybody got faster uh, using the chatbot, so the average time spent on the task fell from uh, 20 minutes to about uh, 12 minutes, so 40% savings the average quality of the output as evaluated by another set of college graduates who evaluated the work on, you know, precision, uh, you know, brevity, originality, and accuracy, um, that uh, average quality rose. uh, But the most striking result was that the great writers were great at the beginning and great at the end. The not so good writers, not incompetent, but not so good, uh, improved. And the degree of improvement was you know negatively proportional to where you started the less good you were initially the better you got now it didn't fully close the gap the best writers were still the best at the end but it made the less good people better now come back to your question does that mean that uh it's going to make all of us more expert or none of us expert <laughs> right you know the if you've seen the movie incredibles you know the famous line says you know if everybody's special nobody's special yeah well if everybody's expert nobody's expert expertise is you know, refers to the notion that you know how to do something that others don't and it's something that needs to be done
0: so who needs expertise if everyone's expert and and why is that a bad thing
1: exactly so well expertise is what makes differentiates labor without expertise we're all you know waiting tables in some sense right doing valuable work that is poorly paid because everybody else can do it so the question for the right in the writing example and this is not something they tested is let's say you had given this task to you know People who are high school graduates and didn't have any college, didn't have any experience writing, could they also have done as well, right? In some sense, if any person without any training or experience could do this job equally well, then expertise
0: is no longer required. Right. And the consequence of that economically is you can pay them a lot less. You can pay them a lot less. It generates- you have, you, have over, you have oversupply. Exactly. It's not that it
1: doesn't make anyone better off. And In sometimes, look, if you're buying that service, it saves you money. Uh, but it it makes it, it creates a challenge for income distribution. But I submit that most things will not become so devoid of expertise. That expertise is you can think of as having multiple components. One component is sort of, you know, specific knowledge. Do I know punctuation? Do I know spelling? Do I know grammar? Another expertise element of expertise is judgment about what goes with what, when do you do what? So, you know, you could imagine a future, right, where Oh, look, I, you know, I don't know much about medicine, but a- I have an AI in the room. It'll tell me what to do in each case. Well, you would never allow someone to perform medical procedures on you, not knowing what they're doing, just because AI was in the room, right? Because what if something went wrong that wasn't anticipated? They would have no judgment to react appropriately in, uh, in short order when the circumstances arose. But you can easily imagine a situation where people who have some foundational expertise in healthcare could do more tasks when enabled by technology that provides, in some sense, knowledge, uh, guidance, and some guardrails, right? Not only telling you what to do, but telling you what not to do, as in don't put these two medications together, for example. And I think there's a lot of potential there that the the situation we face now in the current labor market is elite experts, people with high levels of education are too scarce and they are the bottleneck for a lot of work if you could make some of that elite expertise more available and less expensive, i.e. in the the case of writing, you could enable more people to do valuable work with a foundation of expertise. So let me give you two examples to motivate that. One simple, one a little more in-depth. Imagine I, you know, I'm free this coming Sunday, and what I decide I'm going to do, I'm going to go home and I'm going to rewire my basement. I'm going to pull out my old fuse box and replace it with a breaker box. And I'm going to do that by going to YouTube. Well, you know, let's assume I don't know anything about electrical work. I'm almost surely going to set my house on fire. I'm going to electrocute myself uh, that day, right? This is not going to end well.
0: We don't want that.
1: But but now take another case. Let's say, oh, look, you know, I actually, as a kid, I learned how to solder. I know how to, you know, cut and strip wire. I know how to wear insulated gloves. I know how to measure voltage and impedance. I don't know how to change a fuse box, but I could do it safely with the right instructions, right? So YouTube would actually be helpful to me, right? It's a compliment to the expertise I have, right? Now let's take another example that's... Uh, that's higher stakes, nurse practitioners. Uh, Nurse practitioners are registered nurses with an additional master's degree in uh, the NP field and certification. And they do many tasks that used to be exclusively limited to MDs. They diagnose, they treat, and they prescribe. And uh, they do that based on expertise and judgment, and they have a lot of technical supports. They have access to electronic patient records. They have software that warns them about drug interactions, and they have a lot of tools that make that more feasible. And in some sense, this is a job that has become more prevalent. So there were almost no NPs two decades ago. Now there's about 300,000 of them in the United States. They earn about $130,000 a year, at the median, which is quite a good income. And they make medical care actually more available more convenient, less expensive than it would be uh, for many of us. And this has created a really good middle skill job. I mean, they're educated professionals, let's be clear, but they have five fewer years of education than does a medical doctor. So I think of that as a kind of an archetypal example of what we could potentially do using these tools more effectively is we could allow people to have foundational expertise. You, again, these are medical professionals. They have judgment. They have. Uh, they've been trained. They've apprenticed. But they don't have to know everything at the frontier of medicine. In fact, no one can possibly do that, right? But, but supported by the right tools, they can use that judgment to carry out more expert tasks. But you could imagine the same thing occurring in software development, right? People are going to need to know less coding going forward, but they still need to know computer architecture, or software architecture to design a good app. You may need to know less engineering to make a building stand, but still to be a good architect, there's a lot that goes into that. To make a legal case, there's many boilerplate things that will be done by software, but to make the right argument uh, and to uh, surface the right uh, body of law and decisions, that's going to require expertise. So I think there's a potential for AI to reduce this bottleneck that prevents many people from uh, using their skills well and causes many things to be kind of hogged by the highly educated, enable more people to do skilled work with a combination of foundational knowledge, judgment that comes from experience, that comes from apprenticeship, that comes from training, and then tools that enable them to do a broader range of things because those tools provide knowledge, they provide coaching, and they provide guardrails
0: uh, so people stay within the bounds. So are are you saying that at least in part, if this goes the way you're describing and, and could go, and people are wise about how AI gets integrated into workplaces and in the economy generally that this would reduce income inequality or is that too optimistic No I think that's possible or at least income inequality not necessarily
1: what goes to the top 1% which is you know a very complicated phenomenon but you know income inequality between college graduates and high school graduates which has exploded over the last 4 decades and it's now actually coming down and even more so than inequality What I lament that's happened over the last four decades is many skilled people who did expert work in production, in offices, have been pushed downward into non-expert work where they cannot use the same level of expertise and therefore are poorly rewarded. I would like to see the reinstatement of a new middle class of artisanal workers, or maybe artisan's the wrong word, of workers who, using better tools and foundational expertise, can carry out more expert work, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in repair, whether it's in the trades- whether it's in software, whether it's in engineering and design, that those elite skills will become more accessible. And what will matter is the judgment to use that skill set well. And that will require training, it will require expertise, but maybe not as much, maybe not as many years of schooling, maybe not as few workers delivering vital medical care as we have right now.
0: Let me ask you maybe what is a little bit of a meta question. You're talking about the ways in which AI will benefit people or or be less consequential or more consequential with respect to education level, and education level may be less important. What do you think AI means for education itself and schooling itself and teachers and professors?
1: Well, I think there's, there's hope there as well. So let me emphasize the, you know, what I'm saying. I'm presenting not what will happen but what i think could be made to happen yes so this is and and let me emphasize again or let me say this is the sub oven the future is is not a prediction problem the future is a creation problem we are creating the future and we can use these tools in a in a variety of ways right so china is very effective at using ai for surveillance for real-time content filtering and they're extremely good at that better than we are and they couldn't do it without ai But that's not because that's what AI does. That's because where China has put its AI dollars. We have a choice about where we invest and what capabilities we develop. AI is a very malleable technology. It can be used all kinds of ways, and we can use it for good things or for bad things, and it's a choice. In the case of education, my hope is education can be made more customized, more immersive, more accessible, and less expensive. And you can see that this could occur at all types of levels, but one area in particular where it's so crucially needed is for adult education. You know, we're constantly talking about retraining adults, but adults do not like to go back to school and they don't learn very well on average in classrooms. They've sort of grown out of that. (laughs) Adults learn much better in situ, in actual hands-on work, but we could simulate more of that. Just like, you know, pilots spend hundreds or thousands of hours per year in flight simulators, right? Well, you could have construction simulators. You could have medical simulators. You could have, you know, software development simulators, right? So AI could be used for a lot of virtual learning using uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, and uh, generated environments. So I think there's enormous potential there. The other thing that I am I have hope for, but I, I'm less certain, is how... We use it more effectively in the classroom. So, you know, it's easy to say, well, AI could just teach. And in theory, that's sort of true. But, you know, we've have all kinds of technologies and have had for you know decades or arguably centuries that present information to people, right? If, if presenting information was the limitation, libraries would have solved our pub- public ignorance problems, you know, centuries ago, <laughs> right? So there is something that's uniquely motivational about a teacher that makes people somehow pay attention, tune in, and exert effort. And I don't know how quickly we can learn how to get machines to carry out that same role. I'm not sure, but I am confident that we can use machines for tutoring, for supporting learning and turn teachers into, uh, do have them play more of a coaching role uh, where they're su- supplemented by technology that does provide a lot more uh, customized information and customized exercise and so on. So I think there is real hope. That the technology can make us, allow us to become more effective at, at education. And partly that makes means making education more interesting uh, for many more people.
0: Are there whole classes of jobs that you expect will go away as has happened before? I mean, I don't know if there are anywhere in the country human tollbooth collectors, because you don't need that anymore. And they used to be, you know, everywhere. I'm sure that job was occupied by tens of thousands of people as recently as when I was young. Any whole classes of jobs you think are potentially headed towards extinction because of AI? Yeah,
1: so, and, you know, the toll collector example is a good one. You know, another one is telephone operators, right? at and used to have several hundred thousand women <laughs> who worked as telephone operators, and now it has none. So I think the first order effect is much more changing the jobs that we do or causing them to grow or slowly erode than to whole uh, wholly eliminating them but there will be some so for example there's a lot of time spent in document formatting and creating slides and so on out of other sources i think a lot of that work can be automated there's a lot of people who do coding you know their job is to translate from old COBOL code which is 60 decades, six decades old <laughs> you know to some modern language to you know java or to uh, python or something and that work is actually fairly automatable now There's, unfortunately, you know, I'm very concerned about this, a lot of, you know, graphic design and even creation of music where, you know, we now have machines that can do actually a startlingly good job of, in some sense, recycling what has done in the past and putting it together in new ways. That's a a big intellectual property issue. So I'm, I'm very concerned about that activity. Translation, right? Language translation is, you know, is shrinking as a field. Now, the people who still do it are really, really good at it. But machine translation is just a really close substitute and it can do it in real time. Even... Sign language translation. I am concerned that eventually you'll just basically have a computer monitor that will sign what is happening in the room. So, yes, I do think there are categories of work that will be almost fully replaced. I don't think that's the most substantial effect of this technology, but it will occur. And the concern for people for people who are put in that position is not, you know, will they find work? At least in in industrialized economies, we are essentially at full employment. We're not short on jobs. But if they do less expert work, their standard of living will fall. Their pay will fall. So if you were a software coder and you end up doing security or driving or food prep, it's very unlikely that you'll make as much money. And it's because your expertise is no longer as valuable. And that's the concern.
0: But what's interesting about what you just said, one example in particular, jobs aren't the only thing. And without disparaging or, or minimizing the disruption to people who do certain kinds of jobs, you talked about people who can sign. Well, most places that I go, and most places where there are conversations, including in theaters and at lectures and speeches and everywhere else, no one's signing, because there's not enough people, right? And if you have a technology that can allow literally every conversation, live or otherwise, to be signed through software, you know, notwithstanding the, the injury to the people who used to do that job, you know, overall, there's, there's a great benefit to people who have... Uh, hearing issues. Absolutely. Because you can make it universal. So I don't know how you you weigh each of those considerations. This is the paradox, right? So almost
1: all of these technologies raise aggregate productivity. They make things cheaper and more convenient for us as consumers. But we are also workers. (laughs) And we can't buy those things as consumers unless we have a decent income. And so the challenge is not, will AI make society wealthier? Barring that we don't kill ourselves with it, it almost surely will make us more productive and therefore more affluent in net. But the problem, the challenge, and the one we faced so severely for the last four decades is income distribution. And if it devalues many, many people's skills, then a lot of the benefits of that technology will go to the owners of the technology itself, rather than, or themselves, rather than the workers. And so then we have wealth, but we we have maldistribution.
0: David Otter, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you, this was a fabulous conversation.
0: My conversation with David Otter continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week with some news that made me happy. We've talked a lot about bookstores and libraries on this show, from book bans to library initiatives to young publishers. And this week, as reported by AP, the American Booksellers Association, the nonprofit which promotes independent bookstores in the U.S., reported their highest membership level in 20 years. Even as the pandemic threatened so many storefront booksellers, they have persevered. So much so that membership is actually higher this year than it was in 2019 before the pandemic. And even more optimistic, many booksellers reported a higher number of young readers than they'd seen in years past. One bookstore owner hypothesized that young people are, quote, rediscovering the bookstore and the importance of community after being locked down, end quote. Like so many of you, I care deeply about the health of libraries and bookstores in this country. And I feared a combination of the pandemic and online behemoths like Amazon might threaten these businesses. And I'm so glad to find out that many of these bookstores have been so resilient. According to AP, the booksellers' organization also reported an increase in diversity among their bookstore owners, a profession that's long been white-dominated. Many sellers feel that their work is mission-driven. And in today's political environment, in which we've seen a 28% increase in book bans across the country just this school year, I couldn't agree more. To me, this story is one of optimism and hope for the future of a crucial part of our society. And let it also be a reminder To support your local and independent booksellers whenever you can. I love the local bookstores where I live. When my book, Doing Justice, came out, I'd go every few weeks and sign copies and talk with the owners. And of course, as you know, I recorded a recent podcast from the storied Strand Bookstore in Manhattan. So to all the booksellers out there, I commend you. Keep doing the good work, and we'll keep supporting you and your work. Well that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, David Otter. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters Cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The Cafe team is David Curlander. Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Barara. Stay tuned.